The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It's great to be together. Let's pray, ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we get to sit before your word now, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us. Help me to teach this, communicate it faithfully, honestly, truthfully, and most of all, I pray that every single person who has come today, who listens today, wouldn't just hear a speech I've tried to write, but would actually hear your voice, feel your presence, hear your invitation to each one of us to see Jesus and devote ourselves to him. So we look to you now as we want to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder and I wish I could sit with each one of you and hear what your response is to the account we just heard of Jesus rising from the dead. And I imagine your response could be one of many things. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're amazed at an idea like that. Maybe you're full of, maybe you're full of doubts, cynicism, thinking no way, maybe you're, maybe you're bored and you came here because you felt like a family member pressured you. Maybe you're incredibly happy and this is the best thing you've ever heard. I don't know. But I would like to ask just how are we intended to respond to news like this? So here I'm thinking of the author, right? The apostle John, he was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. He wrote this on purpose for a reason and he, he wants something from it. And I want to read to you what he said, what he's hoping for. This is John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means God's promised king. That he's the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is hoping, that's what what I'm hoping too, that we'll see who Jesus is more clearly and we'll trust him in such a way that that we devote ourselves to him and it actually transforms our lives. We have this, this new life we didn't even dream of before because we're actually now in relationship with God himself. John is hoping we'll see Jesus and devote ourselves to him and be changed. So what do you think then about the idea of devoting yourself to Jesus. I was thinking of the idea of devoting myself to something. I was, I was thinking, I think we all devote ourselves to something. Isn't that true? I mean, every one of us here, you're, uh, you're committed to something. Something's the treasure to you. You, you live for it. I was, I was thinking to devote ourselves to something, we need it to be two things. So see what you think. First of all, if I'm going to devote myself to something, I need it to be true. And what I mean by true is not just true for me, but I mean in accordance with actual reality, true. I, I don't want to follow a fairy tale and be let down in the end. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? I, mean, I don't want to do that. I, I need something that can answer, legitimately answer the biggest questions of life and make sense of how everything fits together. I want that very badly. I need it to be true. I don't just, I I don't want to follow my feelings or my self-invention on what's right for me. 
I've lived long enough to know I'm not that savvy. And what I thought was right for me, many times looking back, was wrong. If I devote myself to something, I want, I, it's got to be true. Second, if I'm going to devote my life to something, I need it not just to be true, I need it to be beautiful. I want to devote my life to something beautiful. So, so here's what I'm getting at with that, is my heart wants to be satisfied. I, wa- I want to be happy. Anyone else? Uh, we, are, we, we all know this about one another. You, you really want to be happy. And by the way, that's, that's why we devote ourselves to various things, isn't it? I want to be satisfied, want to be happy. So I need something that gives meaning, love, hope that really good things really are coming. If I'm going to devote my life to something, maybe you can agree. If we're going to devote our lives to something, we need it to be true. We need it to be beautiful. Okay, what about Christianity? Christianity is not always seen in that light, is it? Especially uh, our cultural moment, it doubts very much that Christianity could be true. Doubts that the Bible's true, doubts that the miracles Jesus did could be true. Our culture's even cynical as to whether there is such a thing as objective truth at all. Many say, right, truth is just your personal invention. Invent yourself, be honest, authentic to yourself invention. So if our, if our cultural moment doubts that Christianity is true, it also seems especially skeptical that Christianity could be beautiful. There's a sense that Christianity has been tried and it's failed. We think of hypocrites in the church, and it's true. There are some, right? Sometimes it's me. We think of uh, some of the moral principles in Christianity today seem like oppressive remnants of the dark ages. So what can we say? Each one of us, we're going to devote ourselves to something. We're looking for something that's true and beautiful. Can Christianity provide that? That's what I'd love for each one of you to consider. Can Christianity provide that? Now, that's a long conversation, but it's one I want to start with you this morning. If you have any questions or if you have any doubts especially, I would love to talk to you after the service, honestly. But, but here's, here's what I want to give. I want to give you this one thing this morning. To honestly consider Christianity, there's one thing you have to take very seriously. There's really like a hub that ties the whole wheel of Christianity together. It rises and falls on this. You've got to consider seriously the resurrection of Jesus. You've, you've got to seriously consider the accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. Because Christianity itself is happy to admit that our faith rises or falls on the historical reality of Jesus literally and physically rising from the dead. After all, Jesus claimed over and over again that he would die and rise again. And so that adds serious intensity to who he is, doesn't it? Uh, Tim Keller once said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? Do you see the point? I mean, these, these gospel accounts are too early to be myth. And if Jesus claims to be the son of God who is going to die and then rise, and he doesn't do that, that means that Christianity is false and you should go do something else. 
He, Jesus can't just be a good teacher. He claimed to be God and that he would die and rise from the dead. He can't just be a good teacher. If that, if that wasn't true, he's not a good teacher. If it is true, he's far more than a good teacher. He can't just be an example of love. If it's true, he is the, the greatest example of love. If it's true, he's more than an example of love. If it's not true, he's not an example of love at all. This claim adds incredible intensity to who Jesus is. So I would just challenge you then to consider, if Jesus rose from the dead, he deserves your devotion. That means he made you. That means he's in authority over all things as king of kings. He deserves your devotion. This morning, we're going to consider the witness of the Apostle John regarding the first encounter of the resurrection. And, and we're, so, we're, so we're looking at this resurrection, and I want, to, I want to look with you for these two things. I want to look with you for truth, and I want to look with you for beauty, just to see if it's, if it's possible that Jesus could be worthy of your devotion. So number one, truth. We're looking for truth. Here we go. I hope you follow along in these Bibles, page 906, John 20. I really want you to see that what I'm talking about is in here. And again, if you don't have a Bible, we would love it if you would take one of these home. But here we go. The first account, uh, or the, um, the disciples encountering the empty tomb, verses 1 to 3. First day of the week, while it's still dark, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Okay, the first thing we need to see about this account is just how slow the disciples were to believe that Jesus rose. And I suppose that should be kind of surprising. Um, We've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, and we see week after week, Jesus is telling you, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. And yet when the moment comes... It's as if the disciples act as if Jesus had never said anything about that at all. And you see this just in this honest account of Mary finding the empty tomb. This is a a publicly known, privately owned tomb. It's dug into rock. It was sealed with a large stone. Now it's open and empty. And, And did you see it? What does Mary think as she encounters the open tomb? Does she does she stand and start singing, you know? Up from the grave he arose, right? Is, is, she, is she waving her arms? He's risen, just as he said. Is that, is that what she does? No, what does she say? It's instantaneous, it's automatic, it's obvious to her. She says, they, whoever they are, they stole his body. So to Mary, this follower of Jesus, who's loved him and followed him and listened to him, the only obvious response to an empty tomb is what? They stole the body. It does not even come into her mind that he may have risen from the dead. And she's not the only one of Jesus' followers who did not see the resurrection coming. In fact, none of them did. She runs to to tell Jesus' two most prominent disciples, Peter and John. She runs to tell them about the empty tomb. And where are they? If you read the other accounts, they're hiding in fear. They're hiding and you think, well, why are, why are they hiding? These are the two main apostles. Shouldn't they be here? I mean, with all the times that Jesus told them that he would rise on the third day, shouldn't they be doing one of those campouts like we do for iPhones or something? 
you get your tent right there, and then as the sun's coming up, you're like, three, two, you know, and they're there waiting, Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is not on their radar. There, there's no expectation of it at all. And so, and so what you need, friends, this is not the clean, easy account of someone making all this up with the details just right. That's not what this is. This is an honest account of people experiencing something totally unexpected that is taking them completely by surprise. The disciples slowly, they become convinced. And I want you to see what it is they're convinced by. It's evidence. So verse 5, John looks into the tomb, sees the linen wrappings lying there. He doesn't go in. Verse 6, Simon Peter comes following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. John peeks in and sees these burial cloths, right? So Jesus' body would have been wrapped in like 80 pounds of cloths and spices. And the cloths are there, but no body. That is very strange. This is very strange. Peter goes in, sees the wrappings. And actually, a, a Greek word here in verse 6 means something like, he began to theorize, which means he starts putting things together. He starts asking questions which I hope we'll be doing here. He starts piecing things together. And we can try to follow what he might have been thinking. Number one, if the body was stolen, and by the way, grave robberies, that's a common thing. That's not, that's not a, out of the realm of possibility. It's a common thing. But if the body was stolen, why would these cloths be here? These cloths and these spices would actually have some value. Thieves wouldn't leave these. That's why thieves came. And unwrapping the body, that would take a lot of time. Thieves would be in a hurry. They wouldn't wait for that. And then why would thieves fold them? Fold them. Makes no sense for thieves. Doesn't make any sense that his body would be stolen. You see it working through Peter's mind. Well, it doesn't make any sense for Jewish or Roman authorities to steal the body. Their entire point of crucifying Jesus was to squash the idea that he could be king. They don't want anyone devoted to him. They want his body in this tomb. They did not take the body from the tomb. It couldn't be thieves. It couldn't be the Jewish or Roman authorities. And Peter's thinking, I know we didn't do it. We've been hiding and sucking our thumbs in a locked room. And John tells you this is where it started to make sense for him. Verse 8, the other disciple who reached the tomb first went in. He saw and believed. It's starting to make sense to him. He's remembering what Jesus has said. He's alive. But I want you to see it was the evidence of the situation that began to move John from skeptic to believer. And I want us all to, to remember here, Christian faith is not blind naivete, you know, if somebody asks me, Matt, why do you believe in Christianity? I'm not going to be like, I just believe. You know, it helps me when I'm weak. I, I got to say, I, I have no interest in that. I have no interest in that. Christian faith is an informed faith based on historical claims and ideas that line up. You may or may not come to trust it yourself, but I want you to see it's based on historical claims and evidence and ideas that line up. 
We read further, we realize, you know, an empty tomb is not going to be ultimately enough for the apostles to believe. They're going to need to see and interact with the resurrected Jesus. You keep reading, and that's exactly what happens. This morning, we're just going to look at Jesus' interaction with this lady, Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrection. So this account is especially remarkable because Mary Magdalene is a woman with a troubled past. She's a woman with a troubled past. So I've just got to tell you, if you lived in the ancient world, first century, and you were trying to invent or start a religious movement, and you were going to make up a story, I'm just going to tell you, this is not how you would do it. This is not how you would do it. First of all, you have shown us that your major leaders were clueless about the most important event of the faith. And second, your first witness to your most, epiv- most pivotal event is a troubled woman, and that would not do in the ancient world. It simply would not do. Uh, You could read extra biblical sources. A woman in this time uh, couldn't even be a trusted witness in court. That's how chauvinistic this is. Not only that, there was a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus. He actually wrote a book attacking Christianity. And one of his lines of attack against Christianity, it's rightly offensive to us, but it had weight in his time and his culture. And here was his attack. Celsus said, you can't believe the resurrection. And why? One of his main reasons? Well, because the first, woman, the first witness was a woman and a troubled woman at that. So the question we need to ask is, why would the apostles tell the world that Mary, of all people, was the first witness to their most important event which they, the leaders of the church, didn't even believe at first, why would they say she's the fundamental witness if they were inventing this story? And here's the answer. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. The only believable reason that they would tell us that this is how it happened, guess what? It's because this is how it happened. It's true. It's true. We could, go, we could go on and on and on, but if you're a skeptic, you have to explain, how did Christianity emerge out of the first century AD and come to grow like it did on those early days, where you have these first witnesses telling you honest accounts of what happened, even honest accounts that make themselves look very bad, that are super countercultural in value, and then each one of these witnesses who saw the event, and who would be in the place to know whether or not it was a lie. They each suffer and die for this, suffer for this their entire lives, and many of them die for it. Would you suffer and die year after year for something you knew you had invented and was a lie? I would not. They didn't either, because it's true. So again, I mean, the, tra- the trap is being set. If Jesus rose, Jesus is Lord, and he's the Son of God. And you need to listen to everything that he said. And he's worthy of your devotion. It's true. All right. Well, I made a a small argument for the truth of Jesus' resurrection, but let's ask our next question. Is the resurrection beautiful? Because you're going to devote your life to something you need. You need to be true, but you also need to be... Beautiful. And here I want to look with you a little bit at Jesus' interaction with Mary. Verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Verses 11 to 15, Mary's weeping. Who can can blame her? 
We imagine her, her situation. The movement she gave her life to seems demolished. The leader and friend who gave her identity and hope was publicly shamed and slaughtered. She goes to visit his tomb, and the body is stolen. We could all admit that's, that's a rough weekend. She's overwhelmed. She's discouraged. She's coming apart. Strangely, she encounters angels and Jesus himself, but she's somehow totally unimpressed by the angels and doesn't recognize Jesus at all. That's another thing that sounds like honesty to me. This seems to be because there's just one theme that dominates her mind. Did you hear she said it again? Verse 13, they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. What's the one thought on her mind? It's the only thought she can wrap her mind around. Somebody stole the body of Jesus. And I think we can relate. You know, when your mind is consumed with doubt and anxiety, isn't it kind of hard to see the things right in front of you sometimes? (laughs) I get that. But it's interesting to see both the angels and Jesus ask Mary the same thing. And what do they ask her? Why are you weeping? And you know, when an angel or Jesus asks you a question, it's probably not because they're looking information which they don't have, but you do. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) The questions they ask are not for them to learn. The questions they ask us are for us to learn. This was for Mary to learn. Mary, Mary, why are you crying? And it seems to just have around the corner. Don't you remember what Jesus said? Don't you remember? Oh, so patient, so wonderful. But do you know what really changes everything? Everything changes when Jesus says her name, Mary. And the lights go on. And if you can imagine, if you can imagine this being true, you can imagine she's full of doubt, she's full of despair. She hears him say her name. And and just like you know, with your close friends or your family members, like when that person says your name, it's it's a whole story. It's a relationship, and you know, and she just thinks it's him. No, better than that, it's you. He's alive. And she's so thrilled. Because you see, in Mary's culture, no one would have valued her at all. No one. But guess who did? Jesus did. Jesus valued her. He saw her, he valued her, he knew her, he loved her in all purity. Not only that, in a way, in his sovereign control, he honors her. Because guess who Jesus picks? to be a first and primary witness of his resurrection. It's the one nobody in that culture would believe. And you know what Jesus says? I don't care. (laughs) Mary. Because the cross and resurrection of Jesus, they didn't just surprise and shock Mary. The The cross and resurrection of Jesus were for Mary personally. They were for her. The truly beautiful thing is, even today, if we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus in faith, we can know that his cross and resurrection were just as personally for me and for you as it was for her. 
The, resur- the resurrection of Jesus is not just real, it's relational. It's relational. And in that, it's beautiful. He's saving his people he loves for himself. Now, I would just like to posit the resurrection of Jesus is the most beautiful thing there could be. All that it did with all its implications. And though we could go on and on for that, I'm just going to mention three ways. Three ways the resurrection is so beautiful. Number one, the resurrection means we have been justified. Look at Romans 4.25. The apostle Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, at some point in your life, I think it will occur to you that you're not all you thought you were. You've messed some things up seriously and you have regrets. And maybe some of us are still riding high on positive thinking and youthful beauty. But I bet at least a couple of us can can resonate with the idea that we've messed it up. We've done harm. And even if we're really honest, we're separated from God. We're, you know, we're sinners. Mary on her own was a disaster. You can read about that. And in that way, she's just like me. I have regrets. I have failures. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength according to his word. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. Have you? And that leads to huge problems. Number one, it's the penalty of my sin. We deserve the just wrath of God. He's truly good. He hates evil. We have problems. We deserve his just wrath. But then there's also the power of our sin. We destroy ourselves with our sin. We hurt others with our sin. But look what Jesus' death and resurrection brings. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Why did Jesus die on the cross? The key word is substitute. He took my place. He took your place. So all the justice I deserve from God, Jesus took that for me so that through faith in him, I can be completely and totally forgiven. If you're honest with yourself and you have a dirty conscience, isn't that good news? That God, the judge of all the earth, would look at you and be like, forgiven, it's all good, it's over, it's paid for, it's done, forgiven. But not only are you forgiven, Paul says Jesus was raised for our justification. Justification is a word that that comes from a courtroom setting. So if you just imagine a scene, God's the judge and the book of your life is put on the table. And God who made you and who sets the righteous standard, the book of your life, your motives, oh man, your words, ah, the way you broke your own standard, ah, the way you hated and cursed on other people for doing the same things you've done, oh, it's all right here. And I don't know about you, but if God looked at the book of my life and gave a verdict, the answer would be guilty, guilty. Do you know what Jesus does for us? This is in the meaning of justification. He moves your book out of the way because he paid for all that on the cross. And instead, he puts his book on the table. And then we look at that, his, mer- his words, his motives, what he said, what he did, his love. You know what the verdict is on him? Perfect. Innocent. Perfect. Pleasing to God. And friends, this is, this is the good news. This is a promise. God will see you 
through the lens of the perfection of Jesus Christ to where he looks at your life forgiven, he says, and perfect in his sight based on what Jesus has done, not on what you have done, so that you can be justified before God as free as a gift and as yours purely by trusting Jesus. For those of us who have tasted that, we would say, I mean, how many of you would say, that's beautiful? The resurrection won that for you. It accomplished that for you. A second way the resurrection is beautiful, adoption into God's family. Did you see what Jesus said to Mary in verse 17? Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. That has the idea, I think, of, hey, you can hug me later. I'm not leaving yet, but that's the rest of the story. But for now, he says to her, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Did you see what Jesus called the disciples here? Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I want to I blow something up here real quick. You, you might think, well, you know, those guys were his disciples. And so they've probably made some category of goodness that I could never make. And so God calls them his children, but he wouldn't do that for me. So I would just encourage you to read the Gospels, and you will find that the disciples on their own are a dumpster fire, just like us. And Jesus is not calling them his brothers because they've earned something. Oh, no. He's calling them his brothers because of what he has done for them. When you trust yourself to Jesus Christ, he adopts you as his sibling. It actually says in Hebrews, he's not ashamed of you. He's proud of you. And the father calls you his child. You get a new identity when you devote yourself to Jesus Christ because of his resurrection. You get a new identity adopted by God, a child of God. Is that beautiful to any of you? How many of you have spent your life looking to invent your significance? If I was just successful enough, beautiful enough, moral enough, a good enough parent, savvy businessman, had enough in the bank, did this, did that, and if I could only, whatever it is, I'd finally be significant. And then one of two things happened. Number one, you never make that goal, and so you think, Oh, I'm not significant, or you do make the goal and you realize it didn't work. Why are there people out there who have the money I wish I had and they're still not happy? Who have the fame I long for and they're still not at peace? Who have everything I say, if I just had this, I'd be okay, and they have it and they're not okay. Here's where you find the deepest, most beautiful significance through Jesus Christ, his life, to his death, and his resurrection, you are a beloved child of God, and you will be forever. And no one can take that from you. That's a beautiful thing. The resurrection earned our justification and earned our adoption into God's family. And the third thing, and I'll just summarize here, the resurrection of Jesus is an appetizer. You know, if you're, if you're watching Jesus' life, there's all this evil and all this suffering all these horrible things they did to the Son of God. And it just is a picture of the wretchedness of our world. So much evil. Seems chaotic and out of control. But then in God's plan, look what happens. Look what happens. Resurrection. 
a new sort of body, new life, something uh, untouchable by the evils of this world. And the Bible calls Jesus the first fruits, if you will, the appetizer, the, the promise of what's coming next. And friends, just as Jesus kept his promise and died and rose for us, he's gonna keep the rest of his promise and he's gonna come back. He is going to come back. And when he comes back, all his people will rise as he did. And he will renew the entire world. And finally, that, those deep things we long for, peace, joy, harmony, love, God's people will enjoy that with God forever and ever and ever. That's true. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. So my, my friends, just think about what John's doing here and showing, this, showing us this account. He's written it to us that we may believe and have life in his name. You are invited to devote yourself to Jesus. So I just kind of want to challenge you with this. If Jesus never rose from the dead, don't worry about it. Move on. But if he did rise from the dead, you cannot just overlook him. You cannot just say, well, I went to church once. He's worthy of your devotion. He deserves it. In fact, it's utterly serious. Because without trusting and devoting yourself to him, your sins and your rebellion are still on your head. And there's judgment coming. But the gift right now, and it's a free gift, a gift of God's love is that if you'll repent of your pride, your self-autonomy, and look to Jesus and devote yourself to him, all of God's love and his goodness is toward you forever. And we feel that tension. We feel that threat. It's a scary thing to think of devoting ourselves to Jesus. But look at the text. He's not just true. He's beautiful. He's not just really Lord. He's a good Lord. He's a loving Lord. He's kind to people like Mary, to people like me and you, and his heart towards us is good. He's worthy of your devotion. He's, the, the truth is that Jesus rose from the dead, and it is the most beautiful truth there is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for us to save us from our sins. And we thank you for the hope we have and the reality of this truth that through faith in Jesus Christ, we, are, we can be forgiven and justified, made right before you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you know our name. You call us by name. We're your children. We're loved eternally. And we can hope in you and your goodness. You rose from the dead. You're going to come back and renew all things. So I pray, Lord, that everyone in here would see you for the truth of who you are, the beauty of who you are, and we would, we would be drawn to, yes, we'd even commit to, devoting ourselves to you. You are worthy of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.